You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey folks, welcome to a special bonus episode of The Projection Booth. Here we have the rest of the interview with Larry Hankin. You can hear part of this over on our episode about the Finks. This kind of spans a lot of the early days of Mr. Hankin's career, his work in the committee, his work in some of his early films, some television roles, etc. I hope you enjoy it. You've always seemed to have been a part of my TV and movie landscape, so you didn't originally go to school to be an actor. You were more into industrial design, is that right? Bingo. Nobody mentioned that. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's a, there's a flashback. Yeah, it's Syracuse University. Some people have been talking about my career, so I've had to been reaching back lately and going, oh, yeah, yeah. I never really had any kind of aim. I would just wander around. Yeah, I went to college even just because my parents wanted me to go to college. I really never had any idea of what I wanted to be. You know, I was just doing, oh, this now. Oh, okay. I had friends who were actors in the uh, acting department. So I'd go see their shows and I'd go, well, that's kind of cool. You know, that well, that's interesting. So I'd start hanging around that. So it was kind of just hanging around. I'd go from group group. So I was doing industrial design because that was the only thing that I could think of that I could even want to do in a college. You know, uh, it turned out later when I graduated. And when I graduated, I still hadn't chosen either industrial design or acting or being on stage. I didn't know what. But luckily, I had befriended a guy named Carl Gottlieb, who was to later write Jaws, uh, the movie. And he, he and I hung out together, and that was my friend. I had many adventures, but he was my friend. So we uh, kind of bonded and said, hey, let's get an apartment together. It's kind of expensive. We'll go to New York. We'll live there because you want to be a writer. And I said, well, I'll just, I don't know. I'll, I'll just go. <laughs> I'll go along. I'll get some kind of job. Don't worry about it. And I was, you know, cleaning, uh, sweeping up, you know, one of those guys. I, when bars closed, I was, I would be the, the uh, lift up the duck boards and stuff. And that was, that was my contribution to the rent. And he was writing stuff and, and actually stealing food for me. I mean, you know, because when he was, he was reviewing movies during the day, that was his gig. He got a writing job right away. Uh, and um, but but he was reviewing just any kind of movies, movies you would never hear of again, or you know some of the big ones. But there was always one thing they would always serve the reviewers uh, a little wine and and a little uh, those frozen uh, shrimp that that cold shrimp stuff. That was what they served, and he would have that like three four times a week. They would be reviewing and always the same little wine to, you know, loosen everybody up, you know, give them some food, the shrimp. So he would bring these shrimp back to me in these uh, very nice napkins. They were always the linen, white linen napkins. But he would just stick them in the pocket of his suit, you know, for hanking. Because, <laughs> you know, sweeping up at night was not a very cash-driven uh, job. So, uh, yeah, he was keeping me alive for a while. So it was kind of Carl that kind of guided me. Uh, and so at night, he would review movies at night. I would go to 
it was Greenwich Village. We were in Greenwich Village. And so I'd go to the Monday night open mics. And I would just sit there and, you know, watch. It was cheap and I could have a cup of coffee or maybe a beer. You know, I don't think they served me. It was coffee. Yes. But I would sit there and just just watch and, you know, nobody bothered me. And, and I'm like, wait a minute, I can do that. <laughs> but uh, in, in fact, I couldn't. I, I was really bad. But I, I somehow I got away with it. Or I thought I was good. I don't know, but I, I've heard some of the recordings. No, they were very bad. I, but I kept doing it. I was, uh, hey, man, I can do this. And I finally did get good at it. I, I guess that's the, that's the lesson. I, I just didn't care. I, I feel like I want to get up on the stage and talk about my day. That's what I did, basically. It turned out I was very hip. Now, I didn't know that because nobody's talking about their day. Everybody's talking about what was on the TV or the folk singing stuff. But I was just talking about, yeah, I was walking down the street and this happened to me. And finally it started coming together and I started to make a living at that. So kind of that's how I fell into it. And no choices. It was, oh, this is here and maybe I'll try this or I can do this. It was either let me try this or I can do this. It was that but that's kind of how I fell into it. If you really want to know what Carl and I are, and, and we were labeled this. And that's the question you just, there's a official term for it, but we are original observers. It's like these guys, you know, the, the world war two, the D day today, you know, there's very few survivors of D day, man. I mean, you know, there's like one or two or three or seven or eight. I mean, of all the, so those seven or eight guys, you know, hey, re, what really happened? You know, okay, you know what happened? You know, we see all with the editing and the stories, but what happened? You were there. You know, I started to get into Second City because of of this stuff at night where I was sitting with, um, you know, watching all the open mics and getting a little better at it, and then. Uh, I started to get so good that I was opening for like Woody Allen. Meanwhile, he's reviewing movies, you know, he's doing what he's doing and I'm just moving along. And it's not because I'm driven. It's just, okay, I can do this and you're going to pay me. Okay, cool. Great. Cause I don't know what I want to do. And it's nice hanging out with you people. You're cool people. So I did that. But then Woody started to get really famous he was doing the uh, television shows and booked like it. I don't know, it was the Copacabana, but even the Copacabana, whatever big nightclubs there was uptown, you know, above 14th Street, that was the line. Woody had made it above 14th Street. That's all we knew from these open mic nights and the, the nightclubs that were below 14th Street. And so I go, hey, wait a minute, you know, and, he, and I had his manager, but I, I said, you know, put me on television. Hey, you know, hey. And he go, no, Larry, you curse and you talk about marijuana and that's a no-no. And back in them days, it was a big deal. It was a career. And the only two guys who were going through it were Richie Pryor and George Carlin. And uh, talking, you know, talking about their day. That's what they were doing. And everybody was getting crazy. And Lenny Bruce was like elbowing his way into, hey, wait a minute, that's too far. That room is too far. Whatever it was, it was just his day, man. He was talking about his wife and drugs and they were driving him nuts. 
so I was getting that kind of blowback too, because I was talking about my day and marijuana and that stuff. So one day I was opening for the Love and Spoonful and because uh, I was doing the, you know, the, the rock and roll crowd is now letting comedians open for them instead of a, a, a another, you know, local band. And I was touring with the Love and Spoonful and the Blues Project and Ian and Sylvia and all kinds of stuff. And that was, yeah, that was kind of cool. But I wasn't, I wasn't part of it. I was just there because I could do it, you know? I was just talking about my dad. I, here's a fact that blows my mind. And all the, because finally, uh, what happened was the cops just dragged me off the stage of a Love and Spoonful concert in Washington, D.C., in St. Louis, Missouri. And I go, wait a minute. I'm, officers, I'm talking about my day. It's, yeah, but you mentioned God. And we, you, and they were throwing stuff at me. And I called my manager, which was Woody's manager. And I go, hey, man, I'm, that's, this is not me. I'm not Lenny Bruce. I don't do heavy drugs, you know. I'm doing this because I can do it, but I don't know about this. What are these people into on both sides? So he goes, why don't you join Second City, man? They own the the theater. So, you know, you can do what you want. And if somebody gets... Because some guys were coming at me with beer bottles in their hand that were upside down saying, get off the stage, man. I thought, why? It was the nightclub. He goes, we want to hear the Kingston Trio. I mean, rock and roll and the Kingston Trio just weren't. It was just like today. I mean, there was, it was the sides were, you know, because it wasn't television and digital. I mean, it was all, you know, that would have been all over the news, I guess. I don't know. But people were dragged. I was dragged off the stage by the police, and a guy comes at me with a beer bottle, and I'm going, no, uh, I, I don't. So I joined Second City, and I, why? Because I could do it. I don't know. Because I wasn't with the times. That was the the trick or the loophole. Is I wasn't with the times. I was just like almost like a a copycat. I was just like, hey, look at that. I didn't know that that was a giraffe. I would go. I just would say, hey, look at that. And it happened to be a cop beating somebody. But in other words, I I wasn't making the the big picture connection that the people I was, you know, now I do. Oh, that's what they were talking about. So that was, that was my problem, you know, all through when people were, I didn't know why the cops were taking me off the stage. Believe me. I didn't think I was saying anything bad. I said, Hey, no, this is religion is funny. Don't you get it? And they didn't. And I didn't understand. No, you're, you're college students. I don't, Ah, okay, cool. All right, you know, I, you know, do something else. I joined Second City, and from there I became an actor. So, okay, so the 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 thing was, I was in Second City, and from Second City, but here's the hookup. Second City, we broke off even from Second City in Chicago. There's seven of us. I came the last one. They just dragged me along, and I went to the committee. We invented the committee. They didn't just say, hey, come on, Hank, and come on. And we went to the thing. Okay, Carl was in the army, but at that time, and uh, I, I didn't want any part of whatever that was. But uh, he came on his leave, he came to see the committee. And then he joined the committee when he got out of the army. 
he was the light. He was the guy who blacked out the scenes for a while. Yeah, total command of, of the improv. Yeah, blackout. No, no, not yet. Or oh, where's the blackout? Where's the anyway? So that's how again we bonded. You know, I was out on the stage, but he joined the company. He was really great, man. He was really funny. So again, we he went down to L.A. and I stayed back in San Francisco with with the committee and different companies. I was directing and stuff. And he went down and he became a boom, Jaws. He wrote Jaws. Holy cow. So he, you know, him and his wife told me, yeah, come on down. So I did. And I slept on their couch for a while. Meanwhile, one of my students, Gary Austin in San Francisco, while me and Carl were, one of the things you had to do in in San Francisco in the company, if you were in the show company, you had to teach at least one class a week. That was like, you know, don't bother me. You got to, because, you know, you're also looking for new people and stuff like that. So I dug it. And one of these guys was Gary Austin, and he was so far out and weird. And the company, I made a company and I put on shows with my class, you know, and we would do like Monday nights at the, at the committee. And we were cool. And then we, and Gary and a couple of people went into the main show and that was cool. And Gary, but no matter what Gary came up with, Gary, who invented the groundlings later, when I was sleeping on a couch, Gary was inventing the groundling. When Carl said, come on down, you know, Gary had gone down before me. I guess. I don't know. I, he was a student. I didn't know him from, you know, her or him. It was just a Austin boundaries that just blew my mind. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. There you go. I taught somebody something. Maybe it went in somewhere, you know. So that, but no. So Carl had nothing to do with the boundaries, nor did I, except kind of through Gary Austin. But hey, man, Gary Austin was his own guy. I don't, he just was out there and he plugged it in. And that's the tough part. I mean, you, you know, being out there is one thing and plugging it in is another that, you know, that's it. But I don't know if he's still with them. I, I don't know. I'm doing my thing. He's doing his thing. So two different countries in LA, you know, on the road side of the hill, you know, anyway, that's the story of the, the, the Brown links, me and Carl. Anyway, you became an actor, but is that something else that you just kind of fell into? I was in the committee and, while I was in the committee up in San Francisco, people from it was so close and so cheap at the time that a lot of kind of semi hemi demi famous people would come up to see us. So though we didn't know anybody, people in LA did know about us, like like Carl, because he was on the stage at the time and he was a funny guy. But me, but other people. So we started to lose people from the company, the the the, like the first people. In the, in the company, except me, because I liked what I was doing up there, and I didn't know about acting or anything like that. I was just improvising my head off, and it was cool, and it was nice, and I had friends, and okay, so, but everybody was leaving and going down there and going down there. They would go down there because people would come up to see us. It wasn't television or anything, no. They would come up and say, hey, there's people up there, and they're really funny, and one of those was a Penny Marshall who came up to see the show. And then one day, uh, I get a call from LA saying, Hey, uh, Penny Marshall saw you and she wants to dance with you. She's got a part, you know, there's, it's a funny thing. 
I had a funny body. I, I was, you know, one of those, like a mind thing, you know? So she, uh, I was loose, I guess, you know, whatever. So uh, she said, would you come down and do one of those? I go, yeah, sure, you know. So I, I think the plane ride, I'm not kidding, the plane ride is like 15 bucks or something. It was crazy. So yeah, for, uh, there and back, maybe 30 bucks. I, I don't know. And I thought, oh, well, what the heck, just to see what's going on with everybody who's moved down there. So when I did the show, and that, there was a whole other adventure down there with that, uh, because we were dancing too close. I mean, it was crazy. Her brother was the producer, and he's going, what's going on here? I said, we're rehearsing. There's a couch here. You know, I'm I'm a date. I'm bringing her to the prom. And so the whole point of the show, the episode, was that she had a date, and, and the date, either she didn't know how to dance or her date didn't know how to dance, and so they were rehearsing in the living room. So she wanted to make it funny. You know, so did I, you know, so... So she thought, uh, she thought, okay, look, why don't you dip and drop me? That would be funny. And, you know, and she, yeah, and she was very physical, so she wouldn't hurt herself. I mean, she was, she was like a clown, I mean, an acrobat. That, that's what it was, an acrobat. So, so she, she dropped me, and I said, no, nah, okay. And then we tried to work it out, and that we couldn't do it right. So she said, okay, well, drop me on the couch. You know, and then drop me that way, so at least my head or so, somewhere like that. And that's funny. And then you can go on top of me, see? And I, I, because there was something right where I just said that, you know, either drop me on the couch or then drop me on the couch and fall on top of me. When her brother said, who was the producer of the show and the writer of the show, he said, hey, hey, what's going on? I go, no. And she immediately jumped up. We both jumped up. What? He goes, what's going on? And he said, we're rehearsing thing. It's going to be on television. What are you talking about? He said, no, I don't want any of that stuff. I'm going, oh, man, what is this? So, you know, and this is his sister. In other words, this is his sister. Um, now, not only is he an actress and he's a producer, but, you know, there's so many things. So she said, oh, stop it. But he's saying, no, okay, none of that. So she immediately looked at me, shrugged the shoulder, and said, well, you know, like he's the boss. Okay, fine, great, we'll change it. So we changed it. So that was the end of that. But to me, I thought, oh, man, you know, I want to go home. But we did. It was one of the episodes. It was very funny. You know, we had to be two or three scenes. Okay. And I just went home. uh, Hopefully that night, you know, but anyway, I went home. Okay, so then... Uh, when I did was sleeping on the couch and she kicked me out and I was surfing on other people's couches, couches. I did get a call. Somebody said, Hey, there's a call. Allison called me. There's somebody called for you. Call this number. And I called the number and they said, did you do a thing for, you know, with Penny Marshall with the thing? And I, uh, yeah, Laverne and Shirley. Yeah. Do you have an agent? No. You want one? Yeah. Okay. Come on down. (laughs) <laughs> that was it. So I went down and said, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, and I said, how did you find out about me? Did you see the show? No, I, you know, and the guy told me, he said, it was an agent. And uh, I said, I'm friends with him today. And, and so he said, well, I poked my head in, uh, or my partner did. Uh, every once in a while, we go down to the production offices of the sitcoms, and we ask, you know, anybody, you know, interesting, come through here? Because they 
do the casting, see? So he just said, and one of the secretaries said to him, yeah, this guy named Larry Hankin, he's very funny. Yeah, he was on the show last week. So he said, oh, you got his number? Yeah, and, and he called me. Oh, he called Carl's number. That's what I gave them. And it seems that since Penny Marshall said it was okay, I guess I can do this. But no, I, I mean, I didn't know how to do everything. I, you know, screw up every once in a while and go up on my lines. I mean, you know, then I became an actor and that was a whole learning process. But I fell into it and I found that, oh, this is interesting. So let me see if I can do this. So, oh, oh okay. But it, it's, you know, it, it mystifies me to this day. Was Lucifer's Women, was that your first leading role? <laughs> I knew you were going to... If you knew about the Sphinx uh, or, or whatever, Sphinx, whatever that was, yeah, you're going to talk about that. Lucifer's Women. Uh, it wasn't... When I did it, it wasn't that. It, it was Svengali. It was just called Svengali or Svengali's Women. And it was a soft core porn movie. And all that I did, and one one or two, because I was in the committee at the time, the guy says, hey, how would you do it? like to do a, a lead in a movie that I'm making right in the neighborhood, you know, in, in San Francisco here, so you can do whenever, you know, we'll shoot it according to your schedule with the, with the committee and stuff. So I said, great. And that I didn't have to be in any porn shots because what the script he had written was, that Svengali was the, like it's the method, the medium of hypnotizing the, the girls to go and soft porn with, uh, I guess, the devil. Uh, why the devil would need a go-between or with some evil guy who was a reluctant. <laughs> it was so funny. He was in the committee too, but he was playing the bad guy. Uh, or, or some ritual that he was doing with these women. He went off to do that. So I could get to, to just be in, in just acting, just lead role things. That was all I was doing was interviewing women. That, that was my role, I think. I would, they would come in. I would hypnotize them in a bar. I would say, come to the thing. I would talk to her in, in my office. And then, boom, he would take over. Because by then I had, you know, Svengaliized them. But when I started to get in the dressing room and they dressed me in the black coat and, and the black vest and the black suit and the black cape and the black sombrero hat or whatever, fedora, the black wide brim fedora. But they started pasting on the black mustache and the back black goatee beard, which was so fake. So I'm saying, no, I've got to hypnotize women back to my pad with this fake beard in a bar dressed like that? Are you kidding? <laughs> Nobody's going to believe me. I mean, not a girl in the bar or the girls in the audience. And then he's been, uh, you know, but it's soft core, you know, just, and he wouldn't change it. I said, no. And even the makeup lady was going, well, and, but he said, no, no. So in every scene that I was in, I was just holding back some sort of, anyway. Okay. So that's, now, what is it? The, what's the name of the movie now? It's somebody's, the devil's ladies, women, somebody's women? Uh, Lucifer's women, yeah. Lucifer's women. Okay. So a couple of years ago, I get a call from a guy. <laughs> and he could say, you know, hi, you know, I, I bought Svengali's women. And um, I go, great. So we're, we're, we're changing it to Lucifer's women. We're kind of re-editing it to make it into a horror thing. Uh, and uh, we're going to go on a world tour. 
would you like to go? You know, that's kind of the interlocutor after the show. We'll have a Q and A, and I'm going, uh, no, no, I don't, I don't think so. Would you like to see a cut? And I go, no, I, no, that was in my youth. You know, we just do things in our youth that we just don't. You know, I don't want to further bother anybody by losing a dollar or whatever you're going to charge for it. Uh, so no, thank you. And that was the last I, I heard of it. And then somebody uh, else uh, mentioned it in an interview. They said, you know, what about those? And then they thought, because, oh, no, I guess I got a sad. Hey, I rented a porno and it was a soft porno movie. And they had the original. They had a Svengali's women with the soft core. But I don't know what soft core is. I mean, I, according to the movie that I was in, Svengali's women. I don't remember any kind of, because it's softcore, you can't really show different things. So I do remember watching the movie, but I don't remember any core at all. <laughs> I don't, you know, it was totally soft, I guess. But anyway, that, that's, that's all I know about it, that it, both copies are out there somewhere, but God knows where, you know. I guess uh, Al Adamson maybe re-edited it too into something called Dr. Dracula. Yeah, well, I was never uh, interested in in those m- movies. I, you know, the I don't need another adrenaline rush. You know, <laughs> I'm kind of like so. I, I I'm not into the the the, the Dracula, uh, Svengali, whatever. Oh, and then there was also a, a ritual devil thing in in, the, in one of them. I remember that in the movie, the the ritual rams heads. Uh, the poor rams got so, there's certain animals we get such a bad rep from humans, you know, uh, rams have nothing to do. God, you know, say satyrs and stuff like that. I, wow. Animals, poor, poor animals. Well, so they'll all be gone soon. So not to worry about them anymore. What was your experience, uh, working with, uh, Don Siegel and Clint Eastwood on, uh, escape from Alcatraz. Like, Oh, that was great, man. That was again, and and maybe Lord, I don't want to lose it. But you know, I never, you know, the, the thing about being here now, I'm I'm kind of, well, be there in a couple of minutes, maybe. But you know, give me like two weeks at least, or let me sleep on it. Because while I was there, now, now I look back on it and I go, that was so wonderful because I didn't know what was going on, and they expected so much from me. And got so much from me because I can see it on the screen, but I had no idea what I was doing. They would just tell me to do something and I would do it. But now I, I look at it and I know there's a character there. I mean, you know, I was doing what I was hired to do. And uh, I, I seem to uh, you know, believe the character. So that's cool. But no, I would follow uh, Don Siegel. There was two people who I could follow around that I had to choose. And, I, and that was a very conscious decision because they wanted me, first of all, to cut off all my hair. And this was, you know, late, late hippiedom. And so I had to get a crew cut. And then, uh, and then I, I was coming from L.A. And I remember this very, yeah, because it's an emotional memory, that I was now an actor in L.A. making a living, having my hair long you know, being an actor with whatever. I could keep my hair long and kind of be the kind of guy I wanted to be in L.A. with long hair. And then I get this role auditioning for Don Siegel. Uh, all of a sudden, I 
I had to cut, I had to get a crew cut, I guess, because I remember I got to go back to San Francisco, which where I haven't been for two years because now I'm a Hollywood actor and I come, I'm going to come back and live on the mainland in North beach. Cause that's where the boats left to go to Alcatraz, which is where I lived. So all my friends, I'm going to have to see back at the, you know, Vesuvio's bar. I have to go in there and talk to all of them with a crew cut. And the last time they saw me two years ago, my hair was really long, you know, almost down to my shoulders. And I just couldn't deal with that. So thinking about Don Siegel and being in a movie with Clint Eastwood or a big Hollywood Alcatraz movie didn't enter my mind. I, that was not, I was just thinking I'm going to see my friends with a crew cut, you know, a, a prison cut. And that's all, you know, it's just going to be embarrassing and girls I dated, you know, oh man. So that's, so that's where I was at, you know, and I'm, uh, okay, so I get on the boat and then I go see them and then I had to choose because now I was going to be hanging around with them for like at least two months. I knew I was going to just be sleeping and going because they only had one boat. You had to catch the boat. They had a, a fleet of boats because every day for two and a, at least a month and a half, they, they had a load convict, you know, actors but they had to load them on boats because you never knew when they're going to need a, a whole bunch of guys in the background. So always they, and but they always left it. I think there was two, you know, like eight, the eight and the nine o'clock boat to catch. Then I, the actors always had to catch the early ones because you know, if they needed you, they can't wait to call the mainland to get them on a boat and get out of here. Uh, so you had to go in the morning and you come back late at night. So I had to choose who I was going to, you know, kind of hang around with and try to learn stuff with. So when I always watched Clint act, but I would follow Don Siegel around like, like, a, like a puppy dog and he knew it. Um, uh, and, and he would treat me like that. I don't know. He, he would treat me like a young, stupid son. <laughs> it's just, you know, I would ask some questions and he's like, I don't know, Larry, I think I'm going to get fired for doing this. <laughs> you know, just look at you like, what are you asking me? You know, you know, uh, or he would tell me to do something or, or I would tell uh, Clint, I would say, like, you know, when they had to jump, I think there was one scene where they were escaping and they had to jump over the, the roof See, because what, what I am, I'm never an actor on the set. I'm, I'm Larry. I'm a guy off the street that they got to do this, who they think can do it. That's, that's where I come from. That's what I, that's my paradigm of life. I'm, oh, okay. I'm here with you guys now. Okay, cool. Let's do it. Okay. So, so uh, Clint is going, uh, he's got to jump over this long thing. They're escaping. They're on the roof. They're running around the roof. And then I think I have to jump across this thing and maybe climb down a pipe down. But there's a jump across. So they got a stunt guy. So Clint says to them, no, I think I'm going to, I'm going to, let me try it. So uh, they go, okay. And uh, he's talking to the stunt guy. So I'm looking over the edge and Clint comes over to me and he goes, um, you think you can jump? And I go, oh yeah. You know, just like that. I mean, no, no, I don't even think, I, I, there's no joke about me not doing it. No, I'm just answering what some guy just said to me. Think you can do it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. So he goes, well, you want to try it? And then I go, what do you mean? He says, well, if you think you can jump it, why don't you try it? You know, and I go, uh, I bet you can. So now he's like, Clint is on you. <laughs> Clint is on you. There's no backing. You know, you know, and all of a sudden people start to like gather around 
oh, I see Clint is on this guy now. So I go, well, no, really, I, I think I can. And now he think I can. So uh, he says, all right, what is it? So we're, we're backing up, and now I'm going, and I'm looking over, and I'm looking across, and I'm thinking, well, maybe I can. And he's going, well, you, you know, want to run and run and start? And I'm going, yeah, yeah, I think I need a running start. And so I'm trying to now just delay. I'm just trying to think of how I can get out in a funny way so his crew don't think ill of me. And just as I'm, you know, backing uh, up to kind of think of something funny to do, Don Sigel says, hey, what, what's going on here? And Clint goes, well, Larry's going to try to jump across. And he says, no, he's not. He says, you know, if he, you know, doesn't make it, we got to send to the mainland and get another guy. I need him in the next shot. So they're not even talking about me. They're talking about, they got to, well, you know, it's going to hold up a whole shoot thing. <laughs> this guy's done, I'm thinking. You know, this guy's really great. He's really cool. He says, Larry, get over, you know, get away from there. You know, he says, leave him alone. So now I'm totally on Don's side now. So for the rest of the shoot, you know, I'd be following him around and thinking of, like he'd call me over and he'd say, um, like, Larry, get, get in the, get in the back of the background of the shot. And, uh, I, I like, yeah, this is the, we're on the tier. Uh, Clint is talking to the guard or somebody. So just get in the cell behind there. You're really kind of not in the shot. You're just in the background there, but I want somebody in the cell there. So just get in there. So I just get in the cell and while they're setting up the camera and the lights and stuff for Clint and whoever, I run to the, prop department and I go give me a chess set just so I'm doing something there not just sitting a, a, a book he says well I don't have a, a chess set what about uh, he said, I don't have a checker set what about a chess set I said I know give me anything so he says okay here and he just turns around and there is a chess he's in here so he gives me a whole bunch of things I go into the cell I just set it up and I'm sitting on my uh, chair or what, I don't know there's a little chair on a table plus the two bunks so I'm sitting at the chair on the, the table and I sit up Thing and I'm just so they they go okay go uh, you know all right camera ready rolling boom and they go blah 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 okay and Don Silva goes cut Larry come here I go fuck man you know what I'm going to well now what did I do wrong man so I'm going over to him what and he goes what are you doing I said well um, I'm playing checkers I said, it's a chess set I go well yeah but but my character doesn't know how to play chess and the prop department only has a chess set. They didn't have a checker set. So I figured, what the hell? I'm in prison. I don't know how to play checker, a chess. I'll play checkers with a chess set. And he goes, okay. I said, I'll do it. I'll stop. He goes, no, no, that's fine. I just want to know what the fuck you're doing. I said, fine. Just go do it. I said, all right, thanks a lot. I mean, and he wasn't that rude. He was kind of nice about it. He said, no, I just wanted to, you know, Find out what you were doing. So, I mean, like, he would do that all, all, all the time. Or, like, uh, I, I, the one time, he, did, he would even do it to the cast. Because what he was trying to tell me at the time was, he says, you think this is something? You should have been back in the 50s when there was, and then he would tell me this something that was, you know, totally ridiculous. Like, in the, in the, in the Escape from Alcatraz, there's a scene where we're going to escape, and he said, and Clint, this is the night that they're going to escape. So we're passing down the, the, the word. I don't know. I think the word is we're doing it tonight 
or tonight's the night, or maybe in the something like that. Each guy goes, <laughs> and and the camera is panning along. So Don Siegel, and they have a a, a movie house in in Alcatraz to show the the prisoners. So we're sitting in the movie uh, house and we're sitting in a row. And Don Siegel goes, okay, we're going to just do a quick pan now. You know, like the army, along with the, and the, the wounded in the beds in the hospital. The same thing at your. So he says, we're going to be just panning along. Now you're going to be watching a movie. You're all watching the same movie. And I'm sitting next to Clint. And then there's all the rest of the, the guys. We're sitting in this row. And he goes, so we're just going to pan down. You're watching a movie. You're watching a movie. We're just watching the faces. And now the camera comes by you. You turn to the next guy. You say what you have to say. And we just kind of follow what you say down the line. Okay. Everybody goes, okay. So then he goes, okay, but what we're going to do is we're going to show a movie just so you're all watching the same movie. Okay. So we are going to be showing a movie on a screen. Or it's going to go a little dark. And that's not going to. So you're all watching the same movie. That's not going to throw anybody. No, no. Okay, let's get rolling. So he goes, okay, and roll it. The camera starts moving. He says, cue the movie. Cue. And the movie starts and the camera starts. And it is the dirtiest, filthiest porn movie I have ever seen. And that's what they're showing on the screen. And kind of, I can hear him just kind of muffle a, a laugh, but the camera isn't to us yet. And you can see all the guys just kind of hold it and just be real serious as the camera moves on. And then it would just break up. And then, you know, I would go real grim and then he would go and I'd pass it on and he would pass it on. And then it would break up and not saying anything. And that, and it goes, when we get to the end of the line, they shut off the camera and he says, okay, moving on. So that's the scene you see in the movie. We're watching this porno movie. And so, so movies is magic, man. You know, it all edits together. You don't see any of that stuff. You just see this ugly stuff. You know, and that's all I see. You know, it's, it's the other stuff. I don't see them making a movie and, you know, wow, this is going to be a tentpole event. I, you know, I go, oh, so this is what, you know, da da da. You know, and, and Clint is kind of the same way because he, he would hang out with the extras, you know, he'd eat with the extras, you know, or pump iron. That's what he, that's what he'd do, you know, and, uh, the, uh, the, the, the guy who played the warden that, that he's a famous actor. He would never come out of his, uh, Winnebago. He would only come out if an AD would go get him to get on the set. He never talked to anybody at, at all. He was just in his thing. He would come out and he'd, he'd act and then he'd go back in. But when he acted, he was really kind of cool. You know, I mean, I would just watch him and, so I, yeah, everybody does it different. You know, a lot of actors like to hang out, some, you know, whatever. So, yeah, I, I kind of hung out with with, with uh, him. He kept on saying uh, to me, uh, Don, you know, like, I don't know. He kept on, and, and, and kindly, and sometimes sometimes he would explain something, but not yeah, really. The, the thing about Don was, finally, I, I got to him. I no, kind of. I guess he got to me, but but how close he he, how nice he was to me in a very tough love way. When when you go out in the morning, if your if your shot wasn't until the afternoon, it would mean that I have to hang around on on the island of Alcatraz in there all, all day long. So generally, there was a lot of crew members who did the same thing. So we'd play a lot of cards and, and dominoes. That was like a big thing. So I was playing cards one time, and um, he, uh, 
uh, I'm, I'm playing cards. We're sitting around. Yeah, I'm sitting on a, I'm, a milk crate or something or, or, or a, an apple box or something. Or he's, We're all just sitting around some improvised table. We're just playing cards for like a penny or not even that. And they all stop and they look up and there's somebody behind me. So I look up and it's Don Siegel. And he, I don't know how long he's standing there. And he looks down at me and he goes, hey, hey Larry, what are you doing? I go, uh, playing cards, man. I'm not up until like two in the afternoon or something. He goes, uh, there's a scene where, um, where you're locked in yourself. I go, yes, yeah, it's, it's right before the breakup. I go, yeah. He goes, um, you know, you're going to cry in that scene. I go, well, uh, I never even thought about it, but frankly. Just, but, but I go, well, yeah, um, yeah, I think I, yeah, I know. He says, uh, so how do you feel about that? You going to cry or, I mean, how, what's, what's the deal there? I go, I don't, I don't. I don't know. You know, I, I really haven't thought about it. He says, well, I, I think you better think about it. He said, well, and I, so I, I said to him, well, I, I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I can't cry. Maybe I won't cry. So he goes, um, I need you to cry. So what I think you should do is uh, maybe you should uh, not play cards. Maybe go back into your dressing room and, uh, I don't know, slap yourself around or something. But I need you to cry. So I go, well, okay. So I turn around. So and then he walks away. So I need you to cry. Okay. So I put down my cards and I say to the guys, okay, um, I'm out. I guess I'm going to have to, you know, go back to my dressing room and cry. So I go back to where they had me installed as a dressing room. And I'm, I'm thinking, I can't cry. I'm not an actor. I don't do this. I'm, I'm a convict. That's all I know. I'm Charlie Butts. That's, I am not getting paid to cry. And I'm starting to freak. And so I actually slapped myself a couple of times. And I'm like, no, this is not going to work. I said, okay, I'm going to get fired. And I knew that they do fire me because the, about a week before a guy had been fired. So I knew that that happens. So now that was in my head. So now I'm going, okay. So I'm trying. I'm really trying, trying to every kind of thing, and nah, it's not happening. So I start to get into a mindset, I'm going to be fired. Okay. So at least I'm, I'm prepared for that, and I won't freak out when, I, when it happens because I can't fucking cry. And then I think, now, wait a minute. I'm an actor. I mean, supposedly I'm an actor. He understands backstory. I can silver tongue my way out of this one. So I, I go back out. Now, this is, I don't know, an hour or two goes by. He goes, I, I'm looking for the, the director. You have seen the director? Yeah, he's right over there. So I go, uh, hey, Don, can I talk to you? I don't know. I'd probably say Mr. Siegel. Mr. Siegel, I could talk to you for a second. He goes, oh, sure, you know. Yeah, what do you want? He steps aside. He goes, I said, well, um, See, look, in this scene, uh, I have a backstory of the character of Charlie Butts, and in in the backstory, see, and I've been working on this for a while, so I don't think that, see, in that situation, I don't, I don't think my character would cry. And he looks at me, and then he turns to his assistant, Carol, a, a woman about 27, I guess. She says, Carol, would you come over here for a second? He's very serious. He says, Carol, I want you uh, to come over here for a second. I want you to listen to Larry. Larry, would you please tell Carol what you just told me? Now, she doesn't know. She's looking at him and looking at me like, what's going on here? I'm looking at her and looking at her. I don't know what's going on. He said, just, Larry, just tell Carol what you just told me. So I just tell her what I told him. I got this backstory and I wouldn't cry and blah, blah, blah. And so I finished. And so in that instance, I don't think my character would cry in this particular scene. So he looks at she looks at him like with this question and they, he looks at her and he says, Now Carol, would you please tell me 
what the fuck he's talking about? And then he turns to me and he goes, look, Larry, I got this big, long movie full of men. And he draws his arc in this circle in the sky. You know, well, it's actually we're in Alcatraz. He draws a circle in the ceiling of, the, of, of, of Alcatraz. And he, and he says, and about three quarters of the way through the circle in the sky there, he points to a point there and three quarters. And he says, you see right here, this is all testosterone. This whole arc is all testosterone. So I need some other kind of emotion here. So I figure, okay, how about if I have somebody cry here? And you know who's right there? You know who's seen that is, Larry? That's your scene. So you got an hour and a half, and I need you to cry. Okay, is that cool with you, Carol? And she says, yeah, it's cool with me. And she walks away, and they walk away, and they just leave me. So now I've got to go back to the thing, and I'm thinking, what the hell is going on? So I try my damnedest. And I think I'm going to be fired right in front of everybody now. So I go on to the set. Finally, this I just sit in my dressing room. I don't want to talk to anybody. I just sit there. And just wait. I think I read something. I don't know. And then the AD comes. He says, you're up. And I go back there. And he goes, oh, you ready, Larry? And I go, yeah, yeah, I'm ready. And he says, okay. And he sits me down on my little bunk there. And he says, okay, this is going to be a close-up. And he moves the camera about. And you look at the shot. The camera is about, I don't know, maybe six inches from my face. This big Araflex camera, whatever they were using. And he goes, you ready to cry, Larry? And I go, yeah, yeah, I am. And he goes, okay, ready, everybody in the lights and looking around, everybody. And he goes, okay, action and Larry, cry. And I'm going, no, 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 no. I, I can't, man. I just is not that. I'm not even trying. I mean, it's, it's obvious. He goes, okay, cut. George and George, this other crew member comes in with this perfume bottle. And I go, what's that? And he says, it's wintergreen. And he sprays this sprayer into my face. And I, and then somebody comes and pats my feet and he goes, okay, roll it. And they just go and he says, go Larry. And these tears come streaming down my face. And he goes, no, 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 one, two, three, four, cut. Larry, thank you. That was great. Thank you. Moving on. And that was it. So for like, what, five hours he put me on? <laughs> five hours. Come on, man. I thought, Wow. He must really like me. <laughs> That's all I can think of. To spend that much energy. I said, wow, thank you, sir. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just love the guy, man. He, uh, he's the, he was the best. You know, he would tell me these old-time stories of the people fighting on the set, and, and, and they always knew their lines. That was the one thing that he always said. They always knew their lines. And I have such trouble with my lines. You know, I'm always blowing lines and I feel so guilty about it, you know. Because I'm just this guy, man, who, you know, okay, you can do it. I can? All right, fine, you know. It's like my uncle. My uncle was a, he was a, he installed oil burners. And one day he said, I need an assistant. And my aunt, his wife, said, well, why don't you use Larry? He said, all right, Larry, get in the truck. We're going to install oil burners. So all day I installed oil burners. I hated it. It's greasy. It's a, but I could do it. You know, it's a, give me a you know, number five, you know, wrench or whatever. Give me an ollie. And give me a, you know, it's, oh, yeah, okay, here. And he would say, ah, man, you're going to go out. I mean, you can go out with me every day. And I no, no, please. <laughs> My aunt, don't make him go. Don't make me go. You know, so he finally stopped because it was just, you know, just nagged the whole, oh, man, oh, man. <laughs> it's just, 
<laughs> he was trying to he was trying to teach me and let me sneak up on it. Hey, what are you doing there, man? Also, like you know, like Mark Twain and Peyton the Fence, Tom Sawyer and uh, Huckleberry Finn. He was the man, Huckleberry Finn. Yeah, uh, that's that guy. That's how I learned. You know, uh, I, 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 and it took me a long time to figure that out. You know, that no. It's better off just leave me alone here. I, I, if, I, if I need to learn this and you need me to learn it, okay. But just, and uh, they don't teach that in school. It's called eidetic. I think it's called eidetic. It's how animals learn. You know, tiger doesn't teach their cubs. You know, hey, all right, now go for the neck. See, this is the neck and spell that. N-E-C-K. Okay, you got that? All right. <laughs> but until you're this big, you know, I learned like cats learn and shit. That's weird. Anyway, hey man, I, I, I gotta go. Can I go soon? Yeah, that's fine. Um, would you mind if we talked a little bit more? I'd love to ask you sometime about uh, Sometimes Jones and some of your solo projects. Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. Because, oh, okay. Yeah. No, no. I don't want to go because I got to talk about that. Because that's what I'm doing right now. You are so current right now. This happened last night. You're the first to get this news. This is a, this is breaking news right here now. It, it's kind of it's kind of iffy, but in my situation, it's always breaking news. Um, Where did the character of sometimes Jones and Sally's Diner come from? She does the deal. Uh, let me let me see how I can. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Is it's kind of what you just asked me, and that's a seminal question. You asked me a seminal question. Uh, uh, so there I was. Was this before? Or after, so that was after. Okay, so the first thing that came was I lived in my car in San Francisco for a year. So I was homeless for a year in San Francisco, living in my car in North Beach and the environs. So that came first, and then I was in the committee and blah, 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 but somewhere in there for a year. Then I go down to L.A. and I was and blah, blah, blah. But then I became a you know, starving actor, you know, paying your rent, but, you know, making and going to auditions and all of that. But the cheapest place I could find was in uh, Hollywood on Western. Hollywood was the Western Avenue, a Western and uh, Hollywood. And that out at that time was a dive kind of uh, uh, inner urban kind of. Thing. If, if you were living downtown, you would be an inner urban survivalist kind of person. So that's where I lived. And here's the weirdness of it. And the yin and the yang. I had a really old car. You had to have a car in L.A. And I had the oldest car that, you know, I was afraid it was a transportation vehicle. And I was always afraid it would break down or something would break on it. So that was in the neighborhood. And you had to, you know, in LA, you have to, you know, drive around the block, I guess in every city now, you have to drive around the block a couple of times to park it. And I remember, so this was a seedy neighborhood. And I remember I was getting undressed to go to bed or I was in my pajamas or what, and in this small little apartment and this walk up on the block there, somebody, I think it was like two stories or three stories, can't build any higher or whatever. So uh, I said, oh, I forgot to lock my car. Not that I had anything important in it, but maybe they were going to steal the car. I got to go down. You got to go down and you got to lock your car. And I was in my pajamas, I remember. So I went through this whole thing of putting, you know, pants over the pajamas and putting on shoes. And oh, man. And I was all warm. And okay, I go downstairs. 
And I see, as I'm locking my car, I see this little old lady walking her little old dog in the street. And it's now like two in the morning or something. And I'm saying to myself, and she just says, well, you know, not afraid of me or anything. And I'm a big guy. I'm thinking, you should be afraid of me, lady. But no, you're not. Wow, good for you. Wow, cool. And I even, you know, gave away a little. So that bothered me. I said, what the hell is a little old lady walking a little dog with total aplomb, you know? And I started to ask around over the next couple of days, you know, hey, you know, I'm in my neighborhood, I saw at 2 a.m. and this little old lady and she didn't give about anything, you know? And they go, oh, you live in the safe zone. I go, what? She says, man, you know, all the hookers, you know, all the pickpockets, all those guys, you know, the, you know, purse snatchers breaking the cars. Yeah. It's the block they live on. She said, you know, you couldn't commit a crime there. She said, don't try it. <laughs> it's bad, bad news. I'm so weird, man. And that's why I hear these knocking on in, in the next door neighbor. And it's the hookers had that. These apartments were where the hookers were doing their business. It's like, holy cow. And I never knew it. I mean, that's how, until somebody told me anyway, that led to, me being a year in uh, on the streets in San Francisco, and then me living in that neighborhood in Hollywood and Western, there was a diner I used to eat at right around the corner from where I lived on on uh, Hollywood, right off of right off of Hollywood uh, Gramercy. I lived on Gramercy. Western is the main street, so it's Hollywood and Western. And he lived between Hollywood and Gramercy. He was far out that I can even remember that. So, so uh, I would be there, and he, he was starving. Sally was his name, actually. And he was from Oklahoma. And he had bought this restaurant, and he was there for like two or three years, and he was just, just making it, man. It was just so sorry. He's an older guy. He bought it figuring he'd buy a restaurant in Hollywood and you know, make his nut to retire and go back to Oklahoma. And it wasn't happening. It was so sad. So that's why I remember him. And so one day, uh, Anna, uh, a friend of mine, an uh, actress friend of mine, uh, who's married to a cinematographer, uh, camera operator, came to me and said, you know, my, my husband needs a, uh, a reel. So why don't you write a, a little movie, 10-minute movie, 20-minute movie, and he'll be the cinematographer just so we can get an upgrade. So, you know, and he'll help you and they can use his crew because he knows because he's an operator. So why don't you do that? So I, I spoke to Harry was his name. Uh, and I said, Harry, you want to do this? And he said, yeah, that would be really great. You know? So then I said, well, how much is it going to, so I wrote something and it was 20 minutes long and he goes, no, it's too long. We don't want to hang around that long. I got to ask these guys to do it for free. So cut it in half. And I didn't even know how to write. So I cut it in half, like I handed it to him. And, you know, it's like, you know, but I, in, the, in the book that I read on how to write, it says, you know, you got to kill your babies. You know, that's, that's how to write. Editing. So I did that. So he, he says, yeah, okay, it's 10 minutes long. He didn't care. So I was, everybody was giving me a little thing. You know, just he wanted it 10 minutes. That was all. He wanted his reel. That was all he was interested in, which I found is everybody. Okay, anyway, so... I did that. So then I said, well, how much is going to cost? So he said, well, you know, I'm going to call in a lot of favors. So he was connected. He was really good. So he was connected. But, you know, he really wanted this. So uh, that was another thing. He really wanted it. Well, for him, you know, he wanted the real. 
So he said, I'll, don't worry, I'll take care of it. You know, just, just, uh, but it's going to cost you $5,000. You need to get $5,000. So that took me six months. Yeah, that was, that's a lot of fucking money. So uh, I worked and auditioned, but now I had a reason to. So I, I, I kind of had a reason to audition because I really hated and still to this day, uh, I, I can do it a, a lot better, but then it was really hard for me. But so, it's like begging. I call it begging. I still it today, you know. And I got to beg today. I'm going out to the valley to beg. Uh, so, okay, you know. I worked and I finally saved up and I'm in the drawer, you know, I have cash, cash, get there. And I handed, and and uh, so I went over to his house because we all lived in, in the same kind of area, I guess. And so I went over to his house. I knocked on the door. Six o'clock. I remember this definitely because his wife, Anna, came to the door and she said, oh, hi, Larry, where you want? I said, you know, uh, we're eating now. We're in the middle of a meal. So uh, I said, oh, I just want to talk to uh, uh, Harry. She said, no, you can't. And that's why I remember it. I said, no, you can't. Um, and, and I had the $5,000 in cash in a brown paper bag uh, that I was going to give to him. So I said, well, um, I really have to talk to him. And she said he's eating dinner and he doesn't want to be disturbed. I don't know what kind of household she was running at the time, but it was kind of weird, but that was the rule. Uh, you know, I mean, she laid it down. And so I said, no, just give me five seconds, you know, cause I didn't, I, I, it was a surprise to me. I had, you know, six months of hard earned, you know, I wanted to hand it to him. So she said, all right, but you know, be, just be quick. And I, she led me into the kitchen and there he was, he was right in the middle of eating. Uh, something with peas. And he said, here. And I said, thank you, Anna. And I said, go for it to him. And I just got out of there thinking I was, I was a fan and still am of the bow jest. What I wanted to do is I just want to shove it in his hand without saying anything and leave and say, you know, your, your bluff is called MF, you know, and just get out of, that's what I wanted to do. You know, that was just, she was kind of interfering. But anyway, I, I got out of there and he called me the, the next day or maybe in a couple of hours. Even, I don't know. But he said, OK, get your actors and actresses and start rehearsing. We're going to do it in two weeks, I guess. So there was a lag time. Yes. Yeah, so he probably called me in about two or three days, you know, getting his crew ready. He said, hey, man, we got the money. Let's just let's do this thing. And he blah, blah, blah. So he called me, said, start. You, you've got two weeks. We got a shoot date. So he's started the shoot date. He called a friend who could produce it. In other words, I had to come up with the 5,000. Uh, he said he, Harry said he could do it for 5,000. That's a lie. They don't lie. You know, you lie for your bliss though. That's the only time you can lie. That's the only time. They all got everything together. I got my actors, my actresses, my actor, my actress, and, and we rehearsed. And then he said, well, we need a, a, an actor, a director. And that's going to cost. And Harry said, no, you, you direct. And I said, no, I can't direct. And he said, yes, you can. I'll help you. Now, I thought that was really cool. I'll be protected. And that was really nice of him. Bullshit. Nobody does that. He was protecting his real. That's why he said that. Yeah. Took me years to figure that one out. But anyway, cool. You know, because I would argue with him. And finally, I would have to give in. And thank God that I did you know, just thank God that I did. Anyway, so, but that would, took me years to come, come to that conclusion, watching the movie. Yeah. Okay. So I, I said, yes, I would. And we, we argued and blah, blah, blah. And he told me, get out of here. You know, you're freaking out my crew. And I did. 
you know, thank God I did. And I walked around the block. And when I walked around the block, you know, because I was saying, no, put the camera here. And he said, no, put the camera there. He said, okay. He said to me, yes, okay, we'll do it your way. We're putting the camera where Larry said, okay, now get out of here because you're freaking out the crew. Because I was yelling. So I said, okay, okay. So I got out. He said, walk around the block. So I walked around the block. And when I came back, they had set it up his way. And then he said, uh, we don't have time to take it down. We're gaining the light. The shot was, it was, it was inside an interior of a, uh, a real uh, diner. And the front window, the sun was going to come in the front window and we didn't have any way to block it. So it was a fait accompli and he knew it. And I said, okay, you know. I mean, because there was no way. I mean, there was no other choice. But years later, every time I watch it, thank God, it's, it's a great shot. Yeah. So I, we did that, and it got a, a nomination. And I fought it all the way to the, to the nomination. Fought it all the way. Again, not knowing where I am at the time. You know, thinking, bringing old rules to this new game. You know, and I was not staying in the same game. At least, you know, you stay in the same game, you learn the rules. You can pass it on. I had nothing to pass on, you know. Because it's all all learning. So, you know, <laughs> as I say, a blessing and a curse. The, the order would be, uh, I, I was homeless, so that, and then I, I could base sometimes Jones, the writing of it. Where did I write that? I, write, I wrote that in the committee. So it was homeless, okay. It was being homeless, and while I was homeless, and then afterwards, and being in the committee, I wrote the sometimes Jones fables, pretty much all of them. Then I moved to L.A., lived in Hollywood, and Sally's Diner, I was eating there, and I was the only customer a lot of the time. So when Anna said, make the movie, I said, we're going to make it here, and I knew he was starving, so I could you know, give him, I think, $350 to, to shoot there. The $350 for three days, I think, is what he wanted. We had to shoot a fourth day. Pickup shots. Always remember pickup shots. Another thing I learned. Um, and Harry said you can't do that, and I said you can do that, and you know we thought about that, and we made that. So, but uh, sometimes Jones and the diner is based on the stories I wrote while I was in the committee after I was homeless. So that, that's the the theme of that. Did I read that you're trying to put together a book? Does that include some of the sometimes Jones stories? Yeah, so the eight fables are now in the book. And the book is called The the Loopholes Dossier, and it's it's a political satire. But but it's also a satire of biographies. It's a biography in the future, uh, not very far in the future, a couple of years. But it's a biography of a a future ex-president. And and it's a biography of just politics, and, and one guy in particular named uh, Louis B. Loopholes. And it's a, the dossier. It's a dossier from the, the, the CIA and the FBI. I got these papers, and I lay out his totally, you know, from the time he entered politics. He wasn't always in politics. The time he entered politics till the time he became president, and then he was impeached. And then uh, from this rubble, he rose again to... Something is something else. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's power. So that, and then there's uh, the oral history of an old time homeless man who is, is based on the year that I was homeless in, in San Francisco. But it's, it's written from my perspective now of knowing, oh, that's what was going on back then. So I, I bring a, l- a little knowledge to it. <laughs> 
uh, what was going on. And it was a weird time. A weird time. Anyway, his name is uh, Barnum Justice, is the hero of that. And he's a homeless guy. And so I told you at the beginning of this that I had news, that, you know, fresh breaking news. So the fresh breaking news is. So I, I pitched some TV people, and they, what, what I just told you just now, yeah, they, they kind of are interested, and in, so we're going to continue. Oh, oh, my, oh, my, my phone is, wow, it's perfect. Yeah, we're running, my, my phone is going to uh, uh, run down. We're running out of battery here. Well, Mr. Hankin, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Oh, thank, thank you, man. This stuff is kind of cool. I never spoke about this stuff. That's it, all great. Great shit. I don't know, you know. But anyway, it, it's great. No, no kidding. It's going to go black now. So, so thank you, Mike. Really, it was great. Thank you very much. <laughs>